Hi all! This episode of Physical Attraction is brought to you by the American National Standards Institute. Standards make the world go round, and they also dictate what is round. Without standardised measurements and definitions, physicists would be speaking to each other in different languages and would struggle to understand the universe even more than we already do. You can learn about standards in America at the ANSI blog at blog.ansi.org pod to learn about how standards apply to you. Now on with the show. Hello and welcome to Physical Attraction. So in this episode, I'm fortunate enough to interview Cornelius Schilt, perhaps better known to the world by his blog title, Corpus Newtonicum, which you can go and read at corpusnewtonicum.wordpress.com. He is a DPhil student at the University of Oxford, studying the history of science and focused on the life, career and works of Isaac Newton. What's more, he just handed in his thesis the day before I conducted this interview. Best of luck with the Viva, CJ. In this, the second part of our interview, we talk about the context of the philosophy of the time and Newton's philosophy of the universe, Newton's personal life, his alchemy, and his legacy as a scientist and as a figure of genius. If you came to Newton without knowing very much, just just what you learn in school about the apple hitting the man on the head and so on, I think the misconception that you might have is this is the age of reason that's being born out of a sort of religiously superstitious ignorance. And all of these people, although they might believe in God, are basically driven by this uh, secular logic, this reasoning, this empiricism, this idea that truth comes through experiment and you observe things and come up with a theory that's then confirmed by more experiment, uh, that is, in a way, agnostic to the creator or the creation of the universe. The only assumptions you need to bring into that uh, philosophy of the world is that the universe behaves consistently according to a set of rules and those rules could have been cast down by a divinely inspired figure or they could have just arrived out of a, a random chance or you can you can get into ideas about the anthropic principle and so on about how only the universes with consistent logic have life to look at that logic and mm-hmm. say oh isn't this marvellously logical so I guess if you had this naive interpretation that Newton came out of the age of reason and was the first of these uh, empiricism people and everything else he did was sort of a strange sideshow. And I think in our modern era, it's, it's very hyper-specialised to the extent that you've just spent five years of your life studying a very, a very small, uh, a very important, very interesting, but a very small aspect of it. And I am also studying a very, very small aspect of a very small behaviour of one climate model. So, you know, we've become hyper-specialised. But, of course, you have to remember that in, in Newton's day, and, you know, they said Francis Bacon was the last person who knew everything. This um, uh, Athanasius Kircher. Who? Athanasius Kircher. There's actually a book in 2004 published called Athanasius Kircher, The Last Man Who Knew Everything. Okay. And this is about 1660, 1670. He's a, he's a French Jesuit philosopher. Okay, interesting. So he was the last man who knew everything. Yeah. But, but, but what, I'm, what I'm saying is that we had more, in those days, we had everything was a discipline in a way that it isn't now. Yeah. Well, you said quite a few things in your introduction to this little yes. statement, uh, which you then labelled as naive. Um, it's very understandable, I think, that we have this picture of Newton, because... 
throughout the Enlightenment, this picture has been cultivated and mm -hmm. then even enforced, if you like, in the 19th century, this idea of the age of reason. Um, this, this, same, this same idea also invented, if you like, the concept of the flat earth, mm -hmm. of the dark ages, and more of those uh, mythologies. Most of what we learned about the, the medieval period uh, and about everything that happens until the 19th century, if you like, is very much distorted through, through an Enlightenment picture. Even the way the Enlightenment itself is presented today, mm -hmm. um, and that is clearly the result of 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 some form of political agenda, and, mm -hmm. and not 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 equated with any any nations uh, sort of sort of policies, but, but an idea that science is by definition a, a, a rational. Attempt of understanding the earth. It presupposes the fact that we, we humans are actually rational. Mm -hmm. Well, just look around you, clearly we are not. <laughs> we are absolutely not rational. And also that it was the first rational attempt. Oh. Things that Newton was doing in terms of trying to establish a consistency with the biblical text was but, somehow irrational. Yes, yes. Well, if if you use rational in in that in that sort of in that sort of way, there have been so many rational revolutions if you like in 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 history i mean the way that the greeks looked at the world which looks completely alien to us now was incredibly rational mm -hmm. not just to them it makes total sense once you accept that they had a different mindset and a different mm -hmm. view of the world and a different view of the cosmos um, and in a sense, many of the Greek philosophers were as agnostic or atheist as we are now mm -hmm. uh, so it didn't even need to have the idea of, of, of a god. And when you think of it, if you like, when we talk about science today, what are the concepts that we work with? We work with mathematical symbolism. We use concepts like force, none of which can be defined. Well, they can be defined in, in mathematical symbolism again. But if I, if, I, if I ask you what is a force, what is it? Then the proper answer would be, I don't know. Mm. We use it as a workable concept and it works. Just like we don't know why quantum mechanics works mm -hmm. or why it works the way it works. And there was this deeply philosophical debate that arose around that because the observations of quantum mechanics, things like wave particle duality, but also the idea that you cannot measure the specific location of a particle mm -hmm. and ideas of non-local influences and things like this, went against what was previously considered to be a rational, natural, observed approach to the universe, and lots of people, I guess, when quantum mechanics came out, eventually almost just gave up on the problem in the Copenhagen interpretation. Yeah. Let's just use it to calculate because it works well, mm. and hope that it makes a, a deeper uh, sense later on with more understanding. Exactly. Well, we're 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 seventy years from that, and and we still don't understand what it's all about. There was a reason why Einstein sort of refuted the whole idea. Mm. It simply did not fit his, his, his world frame. It, it offended him. It offended him deeply, deeply. But I find there's something slightly ironical in that in the 17th century, um, 
alchemy became less and less popular. Mm-hmm. Primarily, I mean, not so, not not so much because of of the, ex- the the experiments that they did and everything, which, which can definitely be seen as a form of protochemistry, which is how it is understood today. Um, but but for the for the, the 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 results they proclaimed, which they could then not reproduce, including you know the creation of the philosopher's stone and the elixir of life, mm-hmm. um, the seventeenth century uh, produced the experimental method as we have it now, which had to be. Re- which had to be, you know, you had to be able to replicate it. You had to have witnesses show that, that could confirm that what you described was actually what you did, and everything, and then they agreed on it, and and so forth. Um, and then Newton introduces mathematical symbolism, mm-hmm. and you might actually say that he returns to the mystical descriptions of the alchemists yes, in a sense. Yes. And this isn't, and and then the French. Perfected in the 18th century, mm-hmm. um, with Laplace and Lagrange and the various others, and then, then comes quantum mechanics, which has, as far as we know, no, or an undefinable relation with reality mm-hmm. to the extent 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 that in in one interpretation of quantum mechanics there is no reality. And now physics is getting even further down this avenue. There was a very good book, I haven't, I haven't finished reading it yet, but it's by this uh, theoretical physicist called Sabine Hofstetter. It's called Lost in Math. And her whole thesis is talking about how, um, str- with string theory and the latest sort of frontiers of theoretical physics, we have moved into a realm that is almost completely abstract and completely mathematical and works almost entirely in this, I suppose, symbolic realm. And... The problem that's with string theory that a lot of people have is they can't come up with an experimental test that could prove or disprove it. And so in some sense, it's it's completely abstracted from that empiricism and that reality. And I suppose in a way, you could say that does start with Newton. Yeah, I and mean, then I actually, I have no I have no direct problems with, with string theory and the fact that it might actually take 100 years before we have... Yeah, of course, of course. We could just be ahead of the game. Ex- exactly, which, 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 as history of science shows, has happened on, on numerous occasions. Mm-hmm. Um, but but let let's let's not use the word rational for the moment. Mm-hmm. Oddly enough, we, we human beings aren't rational. Um, nature's laws are omnipresent and omnivalid uh, until we reach the first seconds, and then everything goes goes haywire. Apparently, mm-hmm. uh, how do you explain for that uh, singularity, if you like? Mm-hmm. Uh, there are so many things that we cannot answer. So I mean, we accept quantum mechanics. And general relativity because it works really well mm-hmm. so something about it has to be true yes there's a truth that arises out of the yeah. predictive power but the shift that we have made is from trying to understand everything about an object or about a theory about nature including where it comes from and what it is in its in its in its in its nature to a very instrumentalist description how does it work mm-hmm. And how can we make most sort of money out of it? But that's, <laughs> that's, that's somewhat of a side bit that you know, yeah, comes into yeah. it, certainly, for sure. I think when we look at the philosophical interpretation of Newtonian mechanics, and I'm, I'm speaking specifically about the physics side here, Newton's laws, you know, things accelerate when you push on them. If you don't push on something, it will keep going at the same speed or staying still forever. And there's this equal and opposite reaction yeah, to every yeah, action. Yeah. And, and the law of gravity, of course. If you take the philosophical implications of this with no other aspects of physics, it seems to me that you can... If you're only smart enough to measure the position and velocity of every particle in the universe, you can trace everything backwards to its origin. 
Yes. And you can trace everything forwards to the yes. peak. You have a wholly predictive... You have a completely predictable... And determined and deterministic model. Deterministic yes. model. Yeah. And, and, of course, nowadays in modern physics, we don't view our physics as being as deterministic and as predictable as that. You can do some reverse extrapolation, and you can do some forward interpolation, but you can't deduce... You know, it, it, it's There are some things that are almost unknowable, and indeed that change when you measure them. So when Newton came up with this Newtonian mechanics, do you get any sense that he dwelled much on the philosophical implications of being able to track everything forward and reverse everything backwards to the start of time like this. Because it would seem to me, like, a, a mind like his would think, well, if this can be done, would it not be possible to reverse time back to the mm. moment of creation and, and forward to the end? I mean, and if the universe is deterministic, does that not fit into... A belief in prophecy. Now, Newton's universe is not entirely deterministic. That's very mm -hmm. important because, um, although let's say uh, formula-wise it might be, Newton realized that his measurements were not always in agreement with his theory, mm -hmm. um, and and of course that had to do with with the 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 the, the fact that they have still had only seven planets, mm -hmm. if you like. They had no knowledge of Neptune or Pluto. Mm -hmm. um, I'm not entirely sure about the about Uranus as well. No, Uranus was only discovered in the 18th century. Mm -hmm. So they realized that there was something odd about the orbits of, of some of the outer planets, Jupiter and Saturn, that in, their, in their system, that they did not behave with exact regularity. Mm -hmm. So if you then inputted that data into the model that Newton created, at some point it would sort of go, it would, would sort of go haywire again. And, and Newton basically argued that that was God's design. Mm -hmm. He had made an imperfect model, so he was basically needed to correct it. His hand was need was necessary. So Newton's deterministic model still has the need for a god to intervene, which is exactly what Newton desires. And so he didn't view it as being oh. incomplete in terms of the mathematics that he'd written down, no. but just requiring a, a nudge from the divine hand. Which was as perfect as you could get. Mm -hmm. Because that's exactly the system he was he was trying to create. Descartes' previous model, with all its weird vortices and hypotheses, which could not be tested, was one of those closed models, which, which only involved uh, a god who, who basically wound up, the, well, mm -hmm. not even wound that up, just, you know, put it into motion and then it would be put into motion forever. So that, that it did not need the providential handle of a god, he called the deist model. Mm -hmm. That is a god, he creates and then he, he, he steps away from it and just let it happen. Mm -hmm. Whereas Newton's god was a theist god. So a god that actively intervenes in nature and, and, and cares for, for, for his, his, his creation and his, his, his well, the human beings he created, of course, his, his children, if you like, his mm -hmm. people. Um, and, and it also allowed for, for miracles, which is also very important, because a miracle goes against the laws of nature. Mm -hmm. If you have a model that's completely deterministic, there is no room for miracles. Yes, and there's, you know, there's Newtonian concerns with things like passing the Red Sea and so on. Yeah, exactly. But this was exactly what made Newton the most popular scientist of his, of his times and, and, and gave him instant fame, because now there was a model that was slick. It had, it had really nice mathematics. Mm -hmm. It was published in a book that no one understood. 
Always good. So it must be good. <laughs> yes. And it, it, it could be used to battle the atheists, mm-hmm. because everyone who did not believe in a theist god was better Finnish than an atheist. The fact that Descartes was a devout Catholic didn't matter. He did not have, his model did not agree with, 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 with a theist model, so he has to be an atheist. Mm-hmm. This is Protestant rhetoric in a nutshell. But Newton's model was ideal for this, and, and, and I mean, in, 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 in the Low Countries, they had this guy called Baruch Spinoza, mm-hmm. famous uh, Dutch Jewish uh, philosopher um, who died rather young. Um, who might be considered the first true atheist, if mm, you like. Yes. And, and again, his, his understanding of the world was, of course, one in which there was no room for providence, there was no room for miracles, if you like. And that was seen as a, as a, as a strong threat for society. Mm. Because he could, his, if, if his ideas would, would be promulgated and spread out, this could lead to an overturn, or an overturn of, 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 of the entire system. Well, let, let's not forget that all of these kings are divinely appointed kings. Ding dong. And they, their whole legitimacy rests on the idea of a theistic god that's still intervening in the world and saying, oh, you know, when you win the Wars of the Roses, that was my idea. Yeah, there was a reason why, why, why Charles I lost his hat. Mm-hmm. He could not understand how, how someone would be able to, to, well, to remove him from the throne, mm-hmm. which resulted in the removal of his hat, which was an unfortunate consequence. But uh, if you read the transcripts of, 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 of the trials, it's, it's, it's sad and hilarious. I've read his, his final speech, or something that's supposedly transcribed of his deathbed speech, and he's asking God to forgive the people for what they're doing. Yeah, because they, they, they were killing the anointed one, if yeah. you like. And he definitely believed in that absolutism. Absolutely. It wasn't a uh, useful propaganda tool, it was a, a worldview. Exactly. Wasn't also very useful for him, but the, the <laughs> hindsight. But he, but so so back to Newton. Um, so so, so or, or Newtonianism, if you like. Mm-hmm. Newtonianism is simply simply the, the whole concept of Newton's ideas, which is very ill-defined because it, it can it can relate to to his his, his system of physics, his system of the world, his ideas of corpuscles, corpuscles, or his. Is his is his his system including its theistic worldview, if you like? Mm-hmm. But let, let's use the, 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 that that last definition. So here we have a form of 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 science that includes all of accepted religion, mm-hmm. as it was understood in, in in most of Western Europe. So Newton was then put down as 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 a herald as 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 a paragon of of of, of science, and he became the first scientific idol. Exactly for this. Mm-hmm. That's the reason why he's buried in Westminster Chapel. Yes, because in a, in a sense, and this is the thing that I'm asked quite often uh, about physics and science in general, is this, this modern day perceived contradiction mm. between uh, science and religion. Yeah. Yeah. And this, I think, is a big reason why people will struggle with an understanding of Newton you, you want to divorce the two personalities. One is rational and scientific, and the other one is still clinging to Dark Ages superstition. But I would say that there's a conflict between science and biblical literalism, such as the Earth being 6,000 years old. Yes. But there's no contradiction between science and religion, per se. And what someone like Newton would have viewed his natural philosophical uh, pursuits as doing is revealing truth from another source absolutely absolutely no the science the science versus religion myth was was, was of course promulgated in the late 19th century by uh, andrew dixon white and, and and draper with books like the history of the warfare 
of of theology with 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 religion or some old Christendom and a bit vague on the titles. Uh, so it's also called, it's also called the warfare um, hypothesis, um, which has no empirical data, if you like, or verification. It's, it's kind just, of ironic. Um, yes, it is ironic indeed. I mean, at its best or worst, they are they are separate realms, as Stephen Jay Gould once wants, non-overlapping hysteria. So you can be a religious person and then you work in a lab as, as a physicist and two have nothing to do with each other, if you mm -hmm. like. Because what you read in your Bible is, is by definition not about nature. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm quite happy with that interpretation. I'm not sure if, if it works that way, but um, no, they're definitely not at war. And if they are at war in some people today, Richard Dawkins, for instance, yes. it's not then retrospectively applicable to the times before, let's say, the, the mid-18th uh, mid, mid century. Absolutely. Um, yes, yeah, so I think we've, we've talked quite a bit about how uh, Newton's religious faith and scientific pro approach, they weren't something that he needed to reconcile, but rather something that were viewed as holistic aspects of yes, the same truth-seeking pursuit. Absolutely. Um, there's a couple of extra things that I'd like to talk about. Um, number one, we've come onto it already a little bit, but um, alchemy. Aye. So, Lovely. Newton's alchemical pursuits, there is a famous saying, I don't know whether it's true or not, that Newton wrote more about alchemy than he did about physics. Either. It's possibly, possibly true. Maybe. It might be true, actually. Yes. I, I know there are about eight. So, there is, a, there is a special project on Newton's alchemy called The Chemistry of Isaac Newton. If you do chemistry and then you replace the, 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 the E with a Y and then you do dot .org then you end up at, the, at a project uh, hosted by uh, the University of, in, of Indiana Bloomington um, had, uh, headed by Bill Newman who is a historian of chemistry, alchemy and especially Newton's alchemy mm -hmm. and they, they have again transcribed all of um, I should say most of uh, Newton's uh, alchemical or chemical, to use the old word, uh, manuscripts, and they total, I think, 850,000 words. Mm -hmm. um, that's about 10% of Newton's total output. Mm -hmm. And I think it indeed rivals um, the, the, the natural philosophical materials mm -hmm. if, you, if you, let's say, don't include the, the various uh, sort of drafts for, for the Principia that he copied out verbatim. And they're probably both shorter than his works on scripture and chronology. Yes, absolutely, yes, because that, that's 50% that's of, of the total output, yeah. So could you describe the field of alchemy as it was in Newton's day, and maybe what they were aiming at, the alchemists, and oh. <laughs> what they were attempting, what Newton in particular was attempting to do? Because we have this idea, of course, that they are attempting to transmute, they're tra trying to turn base elements into gold, and there's also uh, concepts like the elixir of life, eternal youth, other yeah. strange properties that were believed to be possessed if you could just find the right concoction. Now, to be fair, most of that is actually true when it comes to the the, 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 the early to mid-17th century. Mm -hmm. So the, the philosopher's stone is is what everyone is looking for. This 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 mythological, mystical, whatever, an element that, that can transmute base metals into gold. And it is a form of mercury, of liquid mercury. And that's basically what they knew. So stone is a very weird word here. I don't even know where it comes from, but it was always called the philosopher's stone, perhaps to mislead others. 
Because one thing with alchemy is that it's a strictly personal pursuit. And there is this thing of making money out of your secrets. So there were many, there were many um, alchemists, or pseudo-alchemists if you like, who simply claimed that they had the recipe for making gold and would sell it to you if you, you know, let's say deposited 10 million American dollars in a Nigerian bank account. <laughs> <laughs> use, to use the modern use the modern equivalent. If people all believe in alchemy, then it's a good scam to pull. It works. There are plenty of stories of scams that go well into the 18th century, actually, mm-hmm. because everyone wanted to have this, this philosopher's stone. And in, in many ways, then, they have discovered the secret yeah. of turning base metals into exactly. gold, which exactly. is to trick people into thinking you can. Exactly. That's and take their gold. <laughs> I mean, people like Isaac Newton and Robert Boyle were also trying to find this philosopher's stone, which is clear from a letter that Newton writes in, 19, uh, sorry, in 1676 to, to, to uh, the then secretary of the Royal Society, Henry Oldenburg, um, uh, gossiping about Robert Boyle, who apparently has, uh, was, uh, was discussing um, uh, transmuting metal into gold uh, in, in, in various pubs, uh, you know, having had one or two too many. Um, and you just, it's extremely dangerous what he's doing. And he was probably referring to the fact that if you have an unlimited supply of gold, bang, bang goes your economy. Yeah, inflation. Inflation, inflation. And this is 20 or 30, now this is 20 years before Newton actually becomes a warden of the mint. Mm-hmm. So, but as, as if his mind was already on, on, on money on at, the, at the time. <laughs> yes, but basically what, what the study of alchemy consisted of was, first of all, trying to get your hand onto the very obscure alchemical texts, mm-hmm. many of which were only circulating in, 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 in handwritten manuscript material, so you had to be part of an intimate circle. Um, there were books available, and more and more books became available throughout the 17th century, books that were written by, 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 by people with names like Irenaeus Philalaitis, a pseudonymous for, for I Love Peace and the sort of stuff. Um, George, There's a Nicholas George, Flamel figure. Nicholas Flamel, yes. um, uh, George Ripley, allegedly a 15th century monk. Uh, many of the alchemists were traditionally were, were monks because apparently they had all the time in the world to go into their laboratories and, and do all their secret uh, yep. experiments. And then and all these books uh, contained this, this weird sort of poetical um, form of writing which we began, began this whole thing, my first introduction to Newton, uh, which was in a sense a form of... of of, of, of transmitting knowledge in such a way that it wasn't entirely obvious mm-hmm. and would only be understandable to someone who was already in the know. Yes, so th- there's an example I have here which is the metalline form of, al- of antimony being referred to as the menstrual blood of the sordid whore. Oh, yeah. And it's a very yeah. arcane oh, code yeah. that was used. Oh, well, it's interesting that you say that. I mean, there's a few books on Newton's alchemy, mm-hmm. uh, one titled The Hunting of the Green Lion. <laughs> um, and, and, but basically what the alchemists actually did was they, they described in a very poetical form what they saw happening when they were heating up metals uh, and, and creating base chemical reactions uh, at the furnace. Mm-hmm. Or when they, when they put something into acid and let it sit for, for weeks and weeks and weeks you can basically see metalline trees growing, if you like. And if you go onto the chemistry, the chemistry of Isaac Newton's website, you can see examples of that, because we have tried to replicate those experiments. Mm-hmm. Um, that's Bill Newman, um, together with Larry Principe, another eminent historian of, of chemistry himself, 
with a PhD in, in, in chemistry, so he actually knows what he talks about. Yeah. Trying to replicate this, he, he did a roadshow at some point. When he when, when he, he he did it all on a stage actually, which is brilliant. Um, also, also explaining that in order to replicate those experiments, you had to work with the same corrupted materials that they work. With. Yes, you have to say you can only get this substance up to such and such a purity with the equipment they have in the exactly, day. You exactly, can't use everything exactly, like we would do. Exactly, exactly. Use the same metal ores that they use and so forth and so forth. And then, for instance, something that's being described as a gentle falling of snow is indeed seen in tiny white metal flakes that fall down. That sort of... So, in a sense, the poetical description makes sense. Yes, and it, it, it is a sort of coded um, Very form much coded. of observational... Uh, observational science yes you know, when you mix these substances together in this ratio you observe yeah. this phenomenon and you have to learn this one way or the other just like you have to learn modern day mathematics mm -hmm. um, but the thing with alchemy contrary to modern day mathematics you don't you, you, with modern day mathematics that, that you, you don't need to be sort of you know chosen by God <laughs> which the alchemists believe you and, had to or, be or indeed inducted into a secret society exactly so, which was again the same as being chosen by God because only only through through, through his intervention, would you get to know these people and would mm -hmm. they accept you? And one of them would then be your teacher. Mm -hmm. And it's interesting that it, this, this whole concept influences Newton in more than one way. So there is this search for the cause of, 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 of gravity mm -hmm. through the quintessence that we, we discussed. So he gets this from alchemy, from any alchemical literature. Um, the second way is is, 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 is is more sort of hidden, but it's in his idea of how one learns about nature. First of all, again, you have to be chosen by God to understand what it's all about. It's and not entirely unself-serving. Absolutely, no, 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 no. He believed he was one of the remnants, the, the 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 true believers. So, mm -hmm. by, 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 by definition, he was chosen by God. You know, mm -hmm. born on Christmas Day without a father. The whole, the whole, it all goes. Yeah, yeah. And this this might also explain the the, the slightly obscure way in which he wrote his first paper. Which only through through diligent study will you be able to understand what he is saying. Yeah. So he doesn't make it easy for you. Yeah. And and it, it, again, and with the Principia, he does it again. Uh, apparently, at some point, he, he 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 told people around him that he 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 wrote the Principia in in, in a language um, in an obstruse mathematical language yeah. to avoid. Um, you know, smitherous in, in, in mathematics to, to, to start reading it and, and, and derive uh, the wrong conclusions from it, basically. You had to have a very good grasp of mathematics. The pursuit of knowledge is a means by which you approach the divine and you have to attempt, you have to uh, put the effort in yeah, yeah, and, and, and interpret you, yeah. the clues, the symbols. Exactly, exactly, exactly. And he refers to this in his correspondence. In, in various sort of allusions, talking about that, that he wrote the, the, his, his first optical tract um, that uh, only including hints of things, mm. so that, 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 that those who understood uh, natural philosophy well enough would be able to work out the other details themselves. So alchemy by Newton's day had been made illegal. So if you say by Newton's day, then in, somewhere in the early 18th century, we talk, we talk about 1720 or something, does it become highly suspicious? Mm -hmm. I'm not sure if it's already illegal. Okay, so it's not illegal, but it's something that, for example, if the authorities found out you were pursuing... Would it be, would not be looked upon favourably. It would not be looked upon. And is this because people viewed alchemists as scammers, or because they... 
thought that they were potentially, you know, because they believed in the pursuit of alchemy and thought they were going to unlock uh, damaging it, secrets basically, to society. Basically, for a second reason, mm-hmm. um, it was frowned upon by by by. Let's say scientists in the early 18th century, simply because of, of, of the fact that none of the claims that alchemists had uh, turned out to be true or could be reproduced. So it went against the, the, the now sort of shaping up scientific matters. <laughs> so, to what extent can you look at alchemy and say this is an early attempt to understand chemistry? Because they are the first sort of group of people who are dealing with, you know discrete substances that we now come to recognise as elements, yeah. and in the course of their experiments they'll discover things like yeah. some of these can't be reduced to other elements, yeah. and you know, they're, they're understanding that an ore is not a pure form of a metal, exactly. and, and things that we w- would now consider to be basic scientific facts that all of the alchemists would have encountered or discovered, and maybe got I things wrong along the way. I would say to the full extent, mm. absolutely to the full extent, Whatever it's 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 sort of embedding alchemy at its purest form is protochemistry, mm-hmm. because it's exactly as you said. This is what they tried to do, and that also makes the study of the history of alchemy very important for the understanding of chemistry as it is today. And actually, many of the terms that we we still have, like tincture or spirit of something, mm-hmm. come directly from alchemy. We still have them. And in some ways, a lot of what people try and do in chemistry is attempt to find substances with magical properties of some kind yes. or, other, or yes. you know, materials that will be... Uh, I was writing an article the other day about graphene, um, because the chap who, one of the guys who co-discovered graphene came to Oxford and did a talk, and uh, the thing that they were talking about there is that obviously graphene is a 2D layer of carbon atoms, and they've now found the same thing for silicon, and the same thing for germanium, and the same thing for tin. And the new uh, movement in the field is to stack these together in something that's called van der Waals heterostructures. Mm-hmm. And each of these has different um, properties, and you know the, the, the guy compares it to Lego, in a sense. Yeah. And of course, it, it's more informed now, because they can go through on their computers and calculate what kind of properties the substances they're building are going to have but still very much ta- a new form of taking fundamental building blocks and trying to combine them in such a way as to yes, give you exactly, material exactly. with the properties you like exactly it, it, it is, it's it not is. an unscientific thing to do it's it's yeah, well, scientific, the word you use it now, is again our modern yeah. term. But, indeed, but even if you look at it from our modern perspective, uh, what the alchemist did at, it, at its core was pure science. Mm-hmm. So as part of this conception of Isaac Newton as someone who was willing to go against uh, established conventions, even if they were held by very smart people like Aristotle and Plato in the past, um, there are his religious beliefs which were essentially heretical. um, Because in the Christian church, as I understand it, for many hundreds of years, there was profound debate about the nature of the Trinity, which is the God the Father, God the Son and God the Holy Spirit. And, for example, in the Byzantine Empire, uh, in the Roman Empire, there are constant heresies about whether the uh, three figures of the Trinity are the same figure, or aspects of the same figure. So people, particularly when it came to the nature of uh, God the Father and God the Son, were debating about whether they had the same, whether they were made of the same substance, 
of the same substance but similar essence, etc, etc, etc. Lots of seemingly... Um, there's a really famous incident from history when the Mongols are invading from the east and they're destroying the Arabic empire that has taken over most of the Byzantine territories. And it was believed by many in the west at the time that these invading Mongol forces were Christians too. And they were led by a mythological figure called Prester John. And the idea was that some of the people who they'd sent out to the Far East uh, way back in the day had actually successfully converted lots and lots of these tribes to Christianity. But they were concerned that they had been converted into a heretical form of Christianity, where they had incorrect beliefs about the Trinity. So when the uh, Mongol hordes of uh, Genghis Khan and perhaps his descendants after that, I'm not too sure, were invading the West, the Pope sent them a letter which explained in great detail the true nature of the Trinity. And that was more or less the only thing that he had to say to the Mongols, which is saying, just make sure you've got this Trinity stuff right. And the Mongols, of course, without much conception of how Christianity worked, said, evidently your God is on our side because we're winning all the battles. So, you know, prepare to submit to us. Pope. And, oh. and so, but it was, it was a very important strain of theology for, you know, over a thousand years was this nature of the Trinity, the three from one. And Newton's beliefs in this were against the orthodoxy of the day. So would you like to tell us about Newton the heretic and how it affected his Newton life? Newton the heretic, yeah. Well, it is a very interesting topic. Um, one might wonder why in the church these debates were so fierce and, mm-hmm. and, and led to, to all sorts of, 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 of wow. Well, it goes from, from, from murder... Mm. To, to to exile, to excommunication, excommunication if, but well, there's actually nothing worse than that, by the way, mm-hmm. you might as well go to hell straight away. Um, but it all has to do with, with the, the, the Christ's salvation and the extent of that. So basically, God creates heaven and earth, creates man, paradise, everything is, is good. Um, man is in direct communication with God, hence also how man actually understood everything about God and nature, because that's the direct communication. The fall happens because of sin, also involving an apple, just like Newton. And 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 then then how it all works is 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 very intricate. But God then creates a plan to to restore this, and it involves um, His Son Jesus, um, who voluntarily. Uh, descends to earth, uh, becomes man, the incarnation, and dies uh, sinless, and and thereby um, restores the connection between God and His world. Some would say he dies for the same. He died for the sins of mankind. That would be the the, the Western Christian interpretation and the Eastern Orthodox interpretation is is like I said he he restores the relation between God and his creation as totality and in that interpretation the whole act of creation itself is already a break between God and well, what he now has just formed so it's very complicated it's very intricate so it's a question of whether he created Jesus in the same way that he created humans well that's yeah that, that's one thing is is Christ for instance the first creation because he didn't Christ is not just there at the incarnation, he's already there, but, but when does he come into existence? Is it at the same time as God the Father, mm-hmm. or is he the first creation, which gives him a lesser status than God? Exactly. Um, and it also, it, but it also informs one of the extent of his sacrifice, because if he is 
on a lesser level than God, then how can he basically um, make up for what has been lost and so forth? So it's all very intricate, it's all very, very difficult. But it's also very difficult to understand from a, a say, mathematical perspective, mm-hmm. because in the, in the, in the, in the, 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 the Western Christian interpretation of the Trinity, there's God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. They are three persons in one, mm-hmm. consubstantial, homoousios, as it was decreed in the fourth century, of the same substance, um, so they're basically 300% and 100% at the same time, which is, <laughs> is slightly difficult, yeah. Um, now, for Newton, Newton grew up as a Trinitarian. It's part of his, his original Puritan beliefs. Hmm. But at some point, and it's not entirely clear when, he starts, he's, he's, he, he becomes doubtful about the whole, the whole episode. Um, and, and it's much, it's, it's most clearest sort of um, exemplified in two letters that he writes to John Locke in, 16, in November 1619, uh, that, they, that they are letters to a friend, but we all know it's John Locke, where he basically explains what's probably his best reasons for not believing in the Trinity, namely that two key passages that promote the Trinity, key passages from scriptures, um, one in the first letter to John, uh, chapter 5, uh, verses uh, 6 to 8, the second one in the second letter to Timothy, chapter 3, verses 16, that, that are passages that defend the, they, they defend the Trinity, key passages, but they are not used in the debates in the 4th century in which the Trinity is, is, is being discussed and eventually established as a dogma. This is the, this is the, the, the fight, if you like, between Athanasius, who, who defends the Orthodox, the, 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 so the, 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 the Christian sort of the, the, the now mainstream Christian perspective, and that of, of Arius, who basically claimed that Christ was not on the same level uh, as, as as God. Mm-hmm. So he would never Arius would never refer to Jesus as as as, as God the Son. Mm-hmm. He he could refer to him as the Son, but mm-hmm. not as God the Son. Mm-hmm. And it's this Arian heresy that yes, this is the Arian belief that yes. the Mongols had as well. Exactly, it's, it's, this is the Arian heresy, and Newton becomes an Arian. Now, there were many forms of anti-Trinitarianism in his days. There's Socinianism, there's, there's, there's the Unitarianism, and it's not exactly, it's not exactly clear whether Newton was a pure Arian, as in the third, as in the fourth century, or whether he had some additional beliefs. Mm-hmm. But he had made study of the history of the Church of the of the fourth century throughout the 1670s. It was the, the topic that he was most interested in. Um, it, it might have been uh, that he had. I mean, he. When in 1673 he says to, 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 to Oldenburg, uh, I resigned from the Royal Society, it's not because, just because he, he's fed up with, with, with the debates and everything, he also finds that he has something more useful at his hands, mm-hmm. which is the study of church history and of the prophecies. And this concept that 1200 years ago people imperfectly transmitted the word of the Son of God and the intentions of God to the modern day, and everyone you know, is being taught wrong information around you, that renders them all heretical compared to reality. In a sense, I mean, what Newton does, he compares all the excellent manuscripts that he has at his hands, consulting none of them directly, but all via the works of others. And so all the Greek translations of the New Testament, all the Latin translations and everything, and he looks at all the variant versions, and he basically says, well, here we have a Latin manuscript, which is a translation of the Greek, and it does not have the, 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 the it does not have those verses, those two verses that I just mentioned, those two passages. And here we have a Greek manuscript, which is not from the 4th century, but from the 8th century, and it has those verses, and so forth, and so forth. So he, he proves, at least according to him, that it, it is actually, that those are later insertions. 
And to be fair, he's probably right. Mm -hmm. If you look up your modern Bible today, you will see those passages between block quotes, basically meaning not all manuscripts have these passages. Mm -hmm. So there was ample reason for him to, 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 to sort of believe that, that scripture was corrupted here. And, and, and his key argument is basically that in all the debates, the passages are not used. Mm -hmm. If these are the most obvious passages for the Trinity, which why they are... Why aren't they mentioned? They why, must what, have been added in later. And it makes total sense. It's, mm -hmm. it's Occam's razor again. Mm -hmm. Now, the one thing that Newton also believed was that one should never quarrel about the truth of the Trinity. Newton had a firm, made, made, made a very strict division between what he would call milk for babies and meat for grown-ups. And he does this in a, in, 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 in a draft writing that, 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 that he called the Arenicum, which means the peace writ. And it's basically about how people should behave within the church and how they should, how they should discuss difference of dogma, difference of, of understanding. Now, the milk for babies, those are the basic tenets of Christianity. The existence of God, the fact that he created heaven and earth, the fact that he sent his son Jesus to die for the sins of mankind, all these things that are basically the Apostles' Creed. Mm -hmm. so, and the Apostles' Creed, um, sometimes known as, as, as the Twelve Articles, does not mention the Trinity. felt that concepts like the Trinity, or child baptism versus uh, adult baptism and everything, were, were, were things that belonged to, to, to a different realm, those of, of let's say, the more experienced Christians, those those that had received a deeper understanding, where they, like say say, um, they were chosen, like he believes himself to be, and they would then understand things that other, that the normal Christians would not understand. Mm -hmm. At the same time, that meant it was useless to debate those things with, with ordinary Christians, and you should never quarrel about it. You knew that you know, as if you were Newton, you knew that the Trinity was a mistake. The concept of the Trinity was simply wrong. And as, as long as, as, as no one claimed that, that, that your, your salvation was, was depending or dependent on a belief in the Trinity, there would be no reason to open your mouth about this. And he experienced this, this sort of, he experienced this first, first, uh, first handed. Uh, one of his disciples, William Whiston, mm -hmm. who, would, who would take up the Newton's vacant uh, location chair after Newton leaves for, for London in 1696, is also an anti Trinitarian. But the here is he is a loud-mouthed man who, who, who feels that everyone should know the truth mm -hmm. and that he is right about everything. So in 1707, Whiston has this coming out as an anti Trinitarian. And is expelled from all his official positions immediately, but 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 not killed. Not killed. No, no, no. Technically, you would not be in the in the early eighteenth century. We had moved on. You, you you might be fined for this. You might mm -hmm. be dragged to court if someone really wanted to. It's bad for your reputation. It's very bad for your reputation, and you 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 lose all your your your. your, your. So you lose all the, your privilege and everything. But Weston turns to Newton. Almost publicly asks him to help him. Yes, yeah, like, back me up on this. And... Yeah, and Newton gives him the finger. <laughs> Newton says, "Sorry, Mister Weston, I think this is the end of our friendship." Wow. So Newton is not concerned in in the fact that he keeps his heresy a secret. He's not so much concerned, do you think, about reputational damage, as he is. It, it, it stems out of a philosophical belief that these things almost aren't worth talking about. It's always the question, of course, how should we interpret Newton's words? Yes. He, he, makes it, he makes it 
seen that it is all about it's a philosophical stance. Mm-hmm. At the same time, reputation is of course also a thing. Yeah. And and he clearly cared about that. He clearly cared about. It. So the letters that he sends to John Locke in 1690, this is three years after Principia, he is now you know his instant fame. He withdraws. He actually wants them published at some point, but anonymously. But then he withdraws his permission. The letters eventually end up with the same Jean Leclerc, who I mentioned earlier, um, who, then, who, then, who then does not publish them. He, he, he leaves them in, in the library of, of, the, of the Remonstrant Church in, in, in Amsterdam, and they get published in, in 1754 when both Newton and Leclerc had died. And, and, but by then, people had already realized that Newton was probably not as orthodox mm-hmm. as people claimed him to be. So when we talk about Newton in wider society then. There's, he had his academic role as chair of Lucasian Mathematics at Cambridge, I guess. Lucasian chair of Mathematics. Lucasian chair of Mathematics. He had his academic role as Lucasian chair of Mathematics at Cambridge. But he also had two other quite prominent uh, public roles. One was in the House of Lords, and the other was this kind of sinecure, which I guess a sinecure is almost just a cushy job that you give to someone where he was head of the Royal Mint. Yeah, well, some of these happen simultaneously, of course. Yes. So, so Newton is, is, is being 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 selected for the Convention Parliament uh, after after uh, J- James II is ousted and, and William III of Orange is being the glorious revolution. Glorious revolution, of course, yes. And and, and so in, in January uh, sixteen eighty nine, while still the Cambridge Professor of Mathematics, he, uh, he he goes to London to take up his seat. Um, I think it's actually more in the House of Commons because it wasn't the Lord. Right, the Commons. So yeah. So um, and and it, of course in the, in these days Parliament would only come together when when being you know called up by by the King and basically which was basically when he needed money mm-hmm. and then Parliament would be dissolved again. So he um, there's not much known about his role in in, in in why and everything. He might have been selected because he, he was very prominent. He's a very prominent anti-Catholic. So 1685 when James II's reign begins. Uh, Cambridge is suddenly confronted with a with a Catholic uh, friar, Father Alban, who who, who who James wants to become uh, a master of, of Trinity College Cambridge, which is unheard of. But this is a Protestant college which educates for for Protestant uh, ministers and and, and 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 the study of Protestant theology. So Newton vehemently protests against this and 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 drags whomever I know to court and blah 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 and has to. So so it, this might have been actually the, the, the cause for him in, in being selected in, in Parliament. Um, not much is known about Newton's role there. I think his name appears in the books once when he's asked, uh, "Could you please close the window?" <laughs> or something of, of, of that nature. Yes, that's what. That's so, so yes, but but the fact that he was this this now uh, what's it fifty something what about fifty uh, late forty year old you know um, 40, 40, 40, 47 year old uh, mathematician Cambridge uh, instant instantly famous it must have added some weight at, at, at mm-hmm. some point. Now we are on sixteen eighty nine now sixteen ninety six is when Newton leaves. Cambridge for London, he basically gives up an academic position to become a very important figure in, 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 in London and therefore British finance. Uh, first warden of the mint and then master of the mint. And, and he, he, is, he, he does a few remarkable things. Um, 
the 1690s are problematic uh, when you were at the mint because of all the coiners and clippers. The, the people would basically scrape off the edges of coins. And, so and we, should, we should point out that inflation and so on then was far more linked to the gold content of yes. coins and the physical value of coins as it is today. Now all our money is basically virtual and all of the notes are just promises to pay and so on. So. But in, that, in those days, a pound was supposedly a pound of gold. Exactly, exactly, yes. You could basically, yeah, it was also made of gold. Or mm. uh, of an alloy that uh, at least had the same value mm. of, so yeah, so the intrinsic value of the coin was the same as the value that was stamped on the coin. And counterfeiting coins drives up inflation because there's more in the supply. It drives up inflation, and it's a really interesting way of generating your own, you know, yeah. some, some profit. So, so Newton, Newton, Newton uh, took up his new studies, if you like, with with with, with zeal, persecuting uh, these 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 himself, uh, dragging them to court, and in many cases signing their death warrants. <laughs> This is this is this is interesting. At the same time, he's by the way uh, still 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 studying ancient civilizations and, and working uh, working going through the motions of writing and a few extra things. We have a lot of, of, of these studies actually on papers that also have mint related notes, mm. which is incredibly helpful in dating when Newton was doing what. I see. So almost in the margins of his yes. uh, religious and chronological studies, there's stuff about, oh, I must do this at the mint for this yes, person. exactly, exactly. <laughs> there's, there's one note where, where he talks about the Million Act, which was, uh, which was uh, accepted in 1694, when government needed a million pounds to finance war with France. Mm. And, and, and uh, a year after, they, they only had, I think they obtained like, Three hundred and fifty thousand pounds, and and there was this clause that that everyone who wanted could basically um, get his money back in the form of of, of bonds with fourteen percent interest or something quite 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 lucrative, I would mm -hmm. say. And 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 there's it's a more you hope to make a profit by winning. Uh, exactly, exactly. So so so, uh, and, and Newton makes a note about this on 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 a page that also contains. Uh, some of his chronology-related observations, so that it's incredibly helpful when you're a historian. Mm. Um, but 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 Newton thrives in London, you might say. First, a sort of a reclusive figure in Cambridge, he, he now is part of of, of of big society. Within three years, he becomes he becomes master of the mint, and and probably uses some of his alchemical knowledge actually to improve the quality of 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 the coins themselves and of the means how those coins are being made make sure that there's not a lot of leftover material simply simple base design of of the instruments and everything and then of course in 1707 there's a union uh, with, with 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 Scotland um which together with Ireland uh, need, I mean there, there's a need for a recoinage mm. so it's a massive project that he manages and he does so remarkably well um, in between, uh, actually, there's two more, uh, two other important things. He becomes a knight, mm -hmm. um, and he also becomes president of the Royal Society, mm. which, which then helps, you know, in, in you know when the Royal Society um, does a little investigation in in, 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 in the, the priority dispute, who who invented calculus. Um, <laughs> basically, the whole the whole report is written by Newton himself. Yes, though he was probably still the first, actually. Mm. Uh, which and, and Leibniz then then inventing calculus sort of independently about ten years later, mm. but of course it's a little bit well whiffy. Yes, it's a, it's a, it's, smelly. it's not uncontroversial. No. Um, and it kind of brings us on quite nicely actually to I think there's a reputation that Newton has for uh, should we say scientific feuds with 
people, <laughs> particularly oh, yes. Robert Hooke. Robert Hooke, yeah. And this mercurial, sometimes quite aggressive um, personality that he had. And I think in a lot of histories, he comes down as quite arrogant. And from, from what you're saying, given that he was not only worshipped as a, as a scientific and mathematical rock star, but also a, a big man about London society, um, you can see how things might feed into yeah. that arrogance. I mean, how, how do you sort of view his... Because before Newton, we had people whose word became the truth by dint of who said it, like Aristotle and Plato and people who it was very difficult to question and were still being taught in the universities a thousand years later. I mean, did Newton take on that same status during his life and did it influence how he talked to other scientists? Um, yes, it absolutely did. It absolutely did. It's, I found it always helpful to distinguish between pre and post Principia Newton. <laughs> Because there's something very interesting happening when the Principia are being published. So pre-Principia Newton is... I always like to think of your, your average physicist. Mm-hmm. Um, I have lived among them. <laughs> so you have observed. Observe observational data. Slightly sort of socially inept. Mm-hmm. Um, pre- prefer to be on your own. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, communicative, not so much. You know, leave me alone. I'm happy. I, I might have a few, have a little chat over over dinner, but not too much, please. Mm-hmm. And and I'm happy with my books and my my lab or whatever. And and this is basically Newton locked away in his Trinity College chambers or in his alchemical laboratory, which he actually had in Trinity College gardens. So nothing secret there. That was all done in in, in broad daylight. Um, and he is he is just. He's happy what he, what he is. He, he, he's published on, on that. He, he's published a few uh, mathematical uh, letters, if you like, because that was the early correspondence. Nothing, nothing particular. He's made a telescope, which he has also given to Royal Society, showing something of his his, his experimental prowess and also as an instrument maker. Then, ha- then we have the episode with the new theory of writing colors. That first paper of his in sixteen seventy two, and from the and, and Hook Hook's criticism is 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 acid. Yeah. Hook first basically says, you stole all of this from me. You took it all from my micrographia. Now, that is, that is, that's no, that, that, that's no bueno, as my, my Ecuadorian housemate would say. Mm. This is, this is striking directly, uh, saying Newton, you're a plagiarist. Mm. Then there are French Jesuits who basically claim that Newton's experiments cannot be replicated because they don't work. Mm. So they, they, they accuse him of sloppiness. And it, 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 it strikes at his integrity. Because he was quite a sensitive man. He was quite, he was absolutely sensitive when it came to these matters. Yes, mm. he was sensitive, absolutely. There's no doubt about that. And the reasons for it, well, we, we can only guess. It's simply his nature. Mm. But I think he was quite pleasant if you had just a, a normal discussion with him. Mm. But don't tell him that he's... he's that his experiments don't work because he's sloppy, or don't tell him, don't accuse him of anything. Mm. So he he got very fed up with Hook, who kept on repeating these things. And the problem is that Hook was actually a little bit right. Yeah. Newton had taken things from 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 macrographia. Hook is one of those sad figures in science who is very intelligent, has brilliant ideas. But does not have the mathematical prowess to work them out, mm-hmm. and this 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 whole this whole episode is repeated verbatim 
in the 1680s. It's Hooke who, who starts, who brings up discussions of an inverse quadrilateral quadrilateral. It's elliptical motions of the planets. Elliptical motions of the where the Kepler's laws and the inverse quadrilateral of gravities are, being, are, are, are compatible one way or the other. It's Hooke who brings it up. It's Newton whose first reply in letters to Hooke is wrong. It's, it's, it's Hooke who has a discussion with Edmund Halley about this in, in, in Gresham College or in a pub in London. It's Edmund Halley who comes to Newton in 1684. Newton is doing nothing remotely physics related. And then Newton starts writing the Principia. Mm-hmm. And in the earliest drafts for the preface of the whole thing, he mentions Hooke six or seven times, mm-hmm. thanking him for all the inspiration. So we are 15 years from, 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 from 1672. I wouldn't say that the rift is healed, but he can at least admit that he took ideas from Hooke. Mm-hmm. And then the first book is read out in 1686 at the Royal Society, so a year before the official publication, and Hooke explodes. The preface isn't read out, Newton's still working mm-hmm. on it, but Hooke explodes because, and, and, and accuses Newton of, of blatant plagiarism. He's, again, Newton steals his ideas. Takes all the credit. Oh my God, and, and Halley and, and Oldenburg and others correspondents try to communicate to Newton what happened, because Newton was still in Cambridge. And, 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 and you can basically see Newton, Newton search for that preface and put it on his desk and, 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 and take his pen and erase, erase, <laughs> erase, erase. And Hooke's name is erased from the Principia. So there's a very famous thing, which is a, an anecdote that I believe to be true, but I don't know whether it's true or not. So you can tell me whether it's true or not. But certainly it is the case that if you look on the side of a two pound coin here in Britain, the phrase standing on the shoulders of giants is is that and this is something that newton wrote about hook he's he wrote to hook he said if i have seen further than by reading your work whatever it was he'd written then it is by standing on the shoulders of giants and this has become a phrase that's embedded in british culture and the story that i heard about it is that this is a jab at hook because hook was short and he was giving him a sort of backhanded compliment so to speak i mean do you think we can interpret it this way? I don't know the context of when that remark was made. Well, I think it's. I think this is closer to the truth than okay. the, the original uh, statement, which basically suggested that Newton praised Hook for his contributions. Because it doesn't that. seem like much like Newton to praise Hook without some reservation. We are, we are so we are in 1679, and Hook has now become secretary of the Royal Society. Oldenburg dies in 1677, so we're seven years from that new theory paper. And, and, and Newton has withdrawn in, in seclusion. He's not, he's not corresponding anymore about these matters. And, and Hooke likes input. He wants copy for, for, the, for the philosophical transaction. So he, he, he writes this letter to Newton, praising him and, 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 and just trying to heal the rift, if he says. And, and he's, he's suggesting that they have a sort of a friendly correspondence about matters and everything. And, the, and then Newton replies, saying, oh, yes, let's do it. Course, there's no follow-up mm-hmm. but let's do it and, and yes and if, if i have seen further it's only by standing on the shoulders of giant and everything and well hook was not just short he was also stupid mm. so standing on his shoulders would be rather easy i see so i don't think the question is whether it was a viewed uh insult it wasn't very clear and so that mm-hmm. i think that's also why there's no follow-up letter from hook i see because we would have we would have had that letter still it, it's fascinating because this you know as i say it's made it onto the side of the two pound coin i wonder how many people would know that it was actually this kind of jab at a, at a rival a scientific rival 
Well, I've got to be more and more people now. Yeah. But, uh, <laughs> yes, Hopefully yes, everyone yes. listening to this show can now at least share that anecdote next time they have a £2 coin on them. I don't know if it still says that on the side of the new £2 coin. I don't mm. know if it still has the words on. It would be nice if it did. But, uh, but I mean... As, Kid, as, kids, don't follow Newton's example. Yes, indeed. Don't, don't write horrible backhanded things to people who are reaching out in good faith to try and heal the divide. If you are a scientist, just prove them wrong in your next paper. Yes, and then, you know, you can always thank them for helpful discussions at the bottom of the paper or where you choose to do. Okay, so I think I have one final uh, question to throw at you, which is, I don't think we'd get anywhere as historians if we didn't mention Newton's personal life and draw in some means of trying to interpret how, who he was as a person influenced his science, influenced his theology, his chronology, everything else. So I think we're all aware that there's a certain reputation and archetype that we think of when we think of scientists of a kind of towering, isolated genius, which is almost, in quite in a way, the way that you describe Newton, at least pre-Principia, as being this um, someone whose unique intellect is letting them make impossible scientific strides and breakthroughs, who are kind of misunderstood by lesser mortals and... Uh, whose fierce dedication enables them to compose great symphonies, and that almost the qualities of this rare genius and this towering figure leave very little room for anything else. So Newton, as far as we know, there's some debate about this, was never romantically involved, he never had a family that we know, and he didn't spend a great deal of his time uh, with friends. He had friends and close acquaintances that he wrote to, but uh, he wasn't a socialite per se, I suppose. And he was mercurial in the original sense of the word, in the sense that not just maybe suffering from mercury poisoning, but also reportedly erratic, prone to these fits of anger and melancholy. And he at least has this reputation for being generally oblivious to whatever's outside of his current sort of field of, of interest. Um, and even during Newton's own time, this legend was kind of springing up around him. So there's a quote on Corpus Newtonicum, which again, you should all go and read, uh, which is by the Marquis de L'Hôpital, who is known to me at least, for his calculus rule and, you know, mathematician. Um, he said of Isaac Newton, does he eat, drink, and sleep like other men? I represent him to myself as a celestial genius entirely disengaged from matter. And I think this is a, this is a thing that we've since applied to Einstein, to von Neumann, to any very intellectual figure, particularly physicists uh, throughout history, I would say. And perhaps more than anyone else, the image of Newton we have is responsible for shaping our concept of the mad scientist, the rare genius. And this stereotype, while it's interesting, and I think we like to celebrate these figures, um, I think it can be damaging to science and academia in the sense that breakthroughs can only be conducted by rare geniuses and Mozarts, and it's something that you have to be born with. Mm. And all this kind of, I think, and, it, and it's less and less true in the modern era where science is increasingly an extremely collaborative effort. No one person could discover the Higgs boson, no one person could you know, Absolutely. observe the gravitational waves. And we have to acknowledge that we're in an era now where people have to specialise to more and more of an extent and contribute to things as a group. Um, but when we look at this archetype, do you think, with everything you study, do you think that this description fits Newton? And how would you assess his personal life, his personality, 
and uh, it's a very, very long question. question and there's a lot in it yeah so it's personality uh, first and, and, and um, we already discussed it pre-Principia Newton, I mean, post-Principia Newton, he, be, he becomes an arrogant bastard. There's no other way of saying it. <laughs> we, we know of his riffs with Hook, but the, the Flem Seed episode is maybe even more more um, symptomatic. What was this? Uh, so John Flem Seed is the Astronomer Royal. We are in about 1703, 1704. And Newton is thinking about a second edition for Principia, which with Perumius and Poet Roger Coates, a uh, famous mathematician who died rather young, to, to help him, um, and and he's also, and this is interesting, incorporating matters from astronomy in his studies of ancient history, because he realizes that if you read ancient poetry, like by Aratus or by by, by Hipparchus, that describes the heaven in great heavenly great detail, if you don't simply figure out how procession works, then you can date. Mm. when those poems were, were written and you can date the events described in those poems or when those astronomers lived mm. and, that, and so you can then that those are sort of then sort of markers milestones that you can help to determine all the other so and every so so in any case John Flamsey is the astronomer royal he has a meager salary and he's used that meager salary to pay for all his own sort of equipment and he does he, he's diligent painstaking collecting observational data, uh, working through that data and everything, slowly preparing what would later become his famous uh, star catalogue. Um, but Newton wants the data. Flemstead says, well, you can have my data, but not my raw data. Mm. I can give you my, 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 sort of pre- my, my, my calculated data, if you like. Um, uh, and Newton doesn't agree. Newton wants the raw data because he doesn't trust he doesn't trust Flamsteed's mathematical prowess. Mm. He's afraid that he gets wrong materials, basically. Uh, polluted materials, if you like. Almost like, you know, you're selecting your stuff for alchemy. Mm. And he basically goes to to, to, um, to, to Queen Anne and, and has Flamsteed's laboratory and all the materials confiscated. Ever since, Flamsteed, in his personal, uh, in his letters and correspondence, would refer to Isaac Newton as S-I-M, Sir Isaac Newton. Sin, <laughs> sin, the, the, sin, the, that. It's, it's, it, you can basically feel the... Animosity. The, the animosity, but also the disappointment, mm. because Flamsteed, in a sense, adored Newton. Well, you would idolise him. You, you I'd idolise him. Which brings us to the second bit, that it's so ironic that a man who was so against idolatry, both from his, his Puritan background and his own convic- conviction, basically, would become the first scientific idol, mm. with, who was then turned in, and, and, and not just basically sort of, you know, emphasizing particular aspects, but even creating a whole mythology surrounding him, like, you know, the apple that fell on his head. I mean, Newton at age 83 uh, relates to his wannabe biographer, John Conrad, that he was pondering about gravity and that he suddenly realized that the same force that kept the moon in its orbit was also the force that would make an apple drop and and that equated the two and that's basically the whole story that's the apple that's all of it which then became Newton was in his mother's orchard, mm-hmm. you know, having fled from the plague and was sitting and dozed off and then an apple dropped on his head and Lo and behold, he knew everything about gravity. And, and that is a scene of divine inspiration, too. Of course, it's divine inspiration. But, and, but Newton, in a sense, 
helps shaping it as well. Because yeah. There's a reason why at age 83 he starts telling stories. Mm. He starts telling intimate details about his birth, the fact that he was so small that people thought he, he, he would not survive and that the midwives basically took their time because but he, he would be dead and anything because that's what the doctor reported. And everything. But miraculously, he survived being born without a father on Christmas Day. So it's not... He consciously builds up his consci- own mythology. He consciously builds life. it up. Yeah, so it's no surprise that after his death, it, it just seems continues and he, he's, he's the instigator of all of this um, but so and then in a sense I don't believe there's anything wrong with that with those sort of <laughs> yes let's have stories about people but also let's try to understand how it relates to their to their let's say inventions if you like mm. um, we, we come from an age of geniuses whenever when, when people like Einstein and and, 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 and and Newton was seen as geniuses who single-handedly invented something so spectacular and no one else had thought about it and only they could do it because mm-hmm. of their specific background and circumstances. I think there's a lot wrong with that picture. Yes. Now we move on to, we are actually in an era when everyone can be special, which is basically saying absolutely nothing because special means different from. But if everyone, you know, everyone can sing, no, that's not true. Mm-hmm. You should hear me under the shower. I mean, <laughs> that's not how it works. I do believe that we, we are all differently gifted and talented. And some of us have an intimate understanding of, of mathematics. We st- but you still need to put in all the hard work. Mm. You still need to go through all the motions and learn. And, and, but with some, of it, with some of us, it just comes sort of more natural than with others. And we, we, we see through the equation everything. And those people are, are sort of more prone, I think, in, in discovering things from people who just go through the motions and, and, and learn by, by, by following examples and everything. They can become very skilled mathematicians. They will probably never make any great discoveries. Is this some, it's, it's not just the hard work. There is, there is something. Is it serendipity? At times it is. Sometimes just just an event can happen. You're suddenly reminded of something through a smell, and that then brings up A and B and C and and yeah. I mean, take Einstein as an example. Einstein is of course seen as the man. I mean, we know he, he invented special relativity and then general relativity. But there's a reason why the most the most basic equations in Einstein's theories are called the Lorentz equations because they were constructed by, by, the, by the Dutch physicist Lorentz. Um, and what Newton basically did was the same thing that Isaac Newton did. There were these theories around, and he just made the right combination. Mm-hmm. He did put in a lot of effort, all the mathematics that he invented, and the same with Einstein and how he combined all these elements, and, and, and so forth. So it's a combination of both, of being able to be savvy enough to understand what's going on and how it works, being able enough to, to, to then combine it, having the techniques, therefore, but also being in the right environment that allows you to do this. Einstein might still be sitting in his, his office in, in, in Switzerland, you know, looking at patents. Mm. If, if things were slightly different, if he'd had yes. slightly different influences. Exactly, exactly. So, with Newton, um, if Edmund Halley had not visited him, at the instigation of Robert Hooke, if you like, <laughs> he would probably not have written the Principia, and he would he would be known as the man of that. Oh yes, he he had this this, this completely right theory about, about light and colors that was only accepted five fifty years later or something, and he was a very 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 um, very ample uh, you know mathematician. But but that's it. Yeah. He would not have been the, the scientific idol whom whom he became. 
The first of the scientific idols, or the last of the magicians. Oh, yeah, well, there we go. John Maynard Keynes, mm. beautiful, yeah. Well, he was both. He was both, and he would have hated it. Because he was vehemently against idolatry. Mm. That's a key word that returns in everything that he writes. And it's so ironic. CJ, thank you very much for agreeing to be interviewed and for giving me so much of your time and so much of your expertise and wisdom about Isaac Newton. And I'm sure if this is anything to go by, you have nothing to worry about with the Bible. <laughs> oh, cheers for that. Thank you very much. It was an absolute pleasure. Thanks very much for listening to this episode of Physical Attraction. Our guest today was CJ Schilt, a History of Science DPhil student here at Oxford. In a few weeks' time, I have no doubt, Dr. Schilt. If you want to find out more, you can follow him on Twitter, and do visit the blog Corpus Newtonicum. That's www.corpusnewtonicum.wordpress.com. You can also check out the Newton Project at www.newtonproject.ox.ac.uk, which CJ contributed to. It's an attempt to transcribe all of Newton's works. In the meantime, for us, just a few messages. Subscribe to the sister podcast, Autocracy Now!, which deals with the history of notorious dictators. We're still going on and on about Stalin because his life was so long and he did so many terrible things to tell you about. You can follow us on Twitter at PhysicsPod. If you visit the website at www.physicspodcast.com, you'll be able to use the contact form to send us any of your comments, questions or concerns. I always like getting people's feedback. You'd also be able to donate to the show if you wish or purchase some of the bonus episodes I've created for the low, low price of $3 using the PayPal link. But of course, the best thing you can do to support the show is always to tell as many of your friends, enemies, people you've vaguely met, anyone who listens to podcasts, people who don't, anyone about the show. The listeners make it all worthwhile. Until next time, take care.